Welcome to Conspiracy Dimensions, everyone. Joining me, as always, are my partners, Ralph and Bevo. We're continuing on the subject that we've done the last couple of weeks in a row here on Lost Civilizations. We went through Tartaria last week, the Tartarian Empire. And this week, we're going to go through a little bit of evidence on what the hell happened to this empire. But first, we're going to set up with Ralph. He's got some headlines for this week. Go ahead and let us know what's going on, Ralph. Hey, guys. Um, I've got some headlines this way uh, this week. Um, let's start in Japan. Um, on the south coast of Japan <coughs> in a city called Nagoya. And there's a place called Nagoya Tavern. They only hire waitresses, so there are no waiters. And uh, the waitresses uh, not just serve you drinks and food there, but if you want and you pay 300 yen extra, which is around, I don't know, $3 or something, they slap you <laughs> in, in the face. As long as you want. You don't pay per slap. Uh, <laughs> it's all you can take. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I love our Japanese friends. They do have some weird stuff going on, yeah. You know, Ralph, to add to that one, there is a place in Las Vegas called the Heart Attack Grill because the food is so unhealthy. And <laughs> they have they have a thing there where right in the middle of the restaurant, they have a little tiny bar that you hold on to. And the same thing, just waitresses, and they all have paddles. And if you don't finish the food, you can go line up and they'll spank you with the paddles. <laughs> and it doesn't cost extra. Oh, it's for free. Yeah, it's for free. <laughs> <laughs> Next, I've got... Um, I don't know if you still remember the director called... Carl Rinch, he did just one movie in his career so far uh, in 2013, um, 47 Ronin uh, with yes. Keanu Reeves. Mm. Yes, that was a good movie. <laughs> so um, this guy um, uh, pitched an idea to Netflix and got from Netflix $55 million for a serial. So far, really? so yeah, so far so good. And this was in 2018. So Netflix waited for him to start to work and so on. He had the money for the project. Uh, at the end, uh, um, Netflix figured out that the guy uh, spent the money uh, mostly on failed uh, uh, cryptocurrency trades. Oh my God. 50 mil. Yeah, he Holy bought some cars as well and watches and such stuff. But uh, most of the money he uh, wasted on cryptocurrency Holy trades, which I guess he was in huh. shitcoinery. <laughs> you know what? What year was that, Ralph? 2018. 18. We would have to see if he had just bought Bitcoin and held it, what he would have ended with. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and as we talk about cryptocurrencies, there was another news this week. Uh, Jamie Demon said about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency uh, industry, uh, I'd close it down. Good I luck. saw that. I, w I would love to know how he'd like to do that. Yeah, yeah. that's a good question. I mean, um, 
He probably needs to take a look at his own corporation first before he worries about <laughs> Bitcoin. But anyway. Yeah, the guy the guy responsible for the entire, you know, 2008 global collapse is complaining about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Yeah. Mm. I'm not taking too much of what he has to say to heart. I don't trust that guy at all. Yeah, I haven't kept track of it, but I know it's billions of dollars a year they pay in fines, so it's just a line item in their expense sheet. When they do something they know they're doing wrong, but they just factor it in. It's cost of doing business. We know we're going to have to pay the sex some money, but we're going to make a, a, a bunch, so they just do it, and no one goes to jail. But anyway. About him, we could do a show as well and just bank. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's enough corruption there just to do focus on him alone. Yeah. What else you got, Ralph? So, yeah, and so so to end the news and uh, to build a bridge to to our subject, um, in uh, the the news was gigantic skull of sea monsters found on the cliffs of Dorset's Jurassic Coast. So they, they, they found the skull of uh, whatever uh, pilosaur, uh, which is seven feet long. And uh, I guess this proves that there were not only giants back then, but they had uh, the, the right food as well. Yeah, good point on that, actually. And for our listeners, just so you know, that's going to be part of a big part of our episode next week and next week is going to be the episode that we are going to end on for this year because we're taking a break over the holidays and we're going to end it with giants of the ancient world because we've been doing lost civilizations and lost cultures so that's going to be the topic for then and going into this week's topic we're going to continue with that tartarian topic so Exactly what we were talking about here from last week, just to give everybody a quick recap. So <clears throat> we had this large empire that existed that apparently got lost through the times of history. So the first time we ever see anything about this, anything mentioned about this empire was Procopius of Caesarea. He was a Byzantine historian. And in one of his books called The Persian Wars, he mentions Tartaria and the emperor and a war that they had with this empire. And that was in 635. So from 635 on, we had this empire and we even had remnants of it all the way up being documented to 1934. So <clears throat> we know that there was a lot of culture for this particular empire that we have historical documentation for but the question on this one was what the hell happened to these guys so if anybody's heard from before our listeners that we have a theory on this called the mud floods so <laughs> what it was was a, a cataclysmic event that happened globally and it wasn't a single event like the flood events that we brought up in the last episodes but this actually happened a few times in a row and we've spoken about some of this before and we'll be bringing this up later but what i want to get on is a few of the really strange things that happened during the time periods so the time period that we're referring to right now is going to be throughout the 1700s 1800s and then coming into the early early 1900s we had a lot of strange stuff happen throughout the world at this time so we start with this particular empire that is say you know we have historical records of 
yet we really don't know anything about them and we never get taught in school but what do we have that happened that was unusual so this is the idea the idea is we had a series of mud floods and what i mean by that is a phenomenon called liquefaction so liquefaction happens when you have a, a large amount or volume of water going into a soiled area and it starts to make the soil soft but at the same time you have what's called the stress limit for this where it's almost like if you were to imagine an earthquake when if there was a shaking happening like an earthquake type event you would start to get this liquefaction effect and the soil that it is turns into what americans call quicksand so it's too saturated to be able to hold its stability the shaking will happen it'll turn <clears throat> it very very loose anything heavy will start to sink into it <clears throat> and then from there as soon as the shaking stops it'll all reset in a very like flat kind of um like it the, the water will try to hit its equal its equilibrium equilibrium level and it'll just flatten out again now we've seen this happen in modern times so we know what it is we saw an earthquake in japan and at the same time in alaska very close to each other in the 1960s where this happened a couple of times and what started to happen was <clears throat> the buildings that they had were starting to fall and instead of doing a collapse, they would actually start to lean and tip in one direction. The earthquake wasn't strong enough to shake the building apart, but they would. Uh, it was enough to start making them tilt. And some of them actually made it all the way to the ground. It happens very slowly, so it didn't really damage the building. So they look like they're just laying on their sides. So <clears throat> we start with that. That was the idea of these mud floods. So the the theory goes that these floods happened a few of them in a row and it started to bury a lot of things and then that created what's called a population reset so i looked into that a little bit because what came out of this was it looked like through a series of wars with this tartarian empire and then a series of cataclysms with these mud floods that a lot of damage had been done and a lot of history had been lost. And then a few odd things started coming out of this. So we started talking about the World's Fairs last week. And throughout the World's Fairs, they were these amazing structures that were built. And in these structures, they were just, I mean, absolutely incredible. It seemed like they built them way too fast. And then all of a sudden they ripped them all down or they had fires. So it looks like they were trying to accomplish a population reset by taking the old world, shoving it away and creating a new world. Now we've actually seen this happen. If anybody knows what the Georgia Guidestones used to be, there was a line on the Guidestones in the state of Georgia in the US that said, this is what we need to do to keep the world in harmony. And one of the lines said, keep a population of no higher than 500 million people. We also see this occur again in Charles Schwab's book in um, The Great Reset from the World Economic Forum. They're attempting to do what this theory has believed to have already been done. So we look into this and we start seeing things of how would you reset a population and how many generations would it actually take? So how would we know 
if this happened and the history had been erased and we spoke last week about history being doctored and altered and you know basically manipulated to fit a certain agenda so the first thing i came up with was the orphan trains and if you guys have seen anything on those i'd like to see if you have any information on those orphan trains or the orphanages first so this was a phenomenon that hit in the mid 1800s do you guys have any information on those or do you want me to keep going on this uh, the orphan uh, train movement which was uh, declared as a welfare program uh, transported uh, over 200 or at least 250,000 uh, children from urban uh, uh, cities of United States from the East Coast to the uh, rural um, states where they needed uh, farm hands and so on, but they were working in factories as well. And the whole thing started uh, 1864 and the peak was uh, 1889. And, uh, but, but the program continued till 1930. Right. Bevo, did you see anything on those? I didn't actually knew one. I didn't go down that path, but um, okay, yeah, that's all right. So, with what we had here, that was a couple of things that happened, and one of them was we had a lot of laws coming up, especially in 1833, that was from England and Wales, and what this was, where they were called the laws relating to the poor, and they had fancy uh, legal names to them, but essentially what happened was. It was getting to the point where they were telling uh, people that, look, if you aren't able to take care of your children, the state is going to take them over. So it looked like the governments at the time, <clears throat> during the time that these laws were being passed, were making a really active play for taking people's children away from them. We start seeing this, and if you go on just like Wikipedia, they have a partial list. Just to give you an idea, in the UK during the 1800s, they in the early 1800s, they had already founded 64 orphanages. And if you look at these pictures, these orphanages are able to hold thousands of kids. To give you an idea of how many children the orphanages were processing at this time, during that time, Italy was processing 32,000 orphans per year. Spain and Portugal were averaging 15,000 a year. Before 1860, Milan, Naples, and Florence processed 374,000 orphans at that time. Holy crap. And in 18, 1882, in Moscow, they already had 41,000 orphans and 32,000 more that were already sent off the year before to foster homes. So the question is, where in the hell did all these friggin' kids come from? So... If you look at populations during that time, literally we would have had to been screwing each other's brains out on a 24-hour basis nonstop to produce these many kids, this many kids. So the idea for the Tartarian Empire was after a massive amount of wars, most of the adults had been gone, and this is where these children were coming from. The problem was these children remembered their past. So when they got to an orphanage, they immediately erased their identities by giving them new ones, and then they shipped them off to very far places, 
all over the world because most of Tartaria was in Asia. They pushed them west into Europe and Russia, and then they got them as far as the U.S. So if you were going to do a reset, the easiest thing to do is to take all these children from the adults that don't have anyone to go to anymore and shove them into areas where they can get re-raised and reacclimated into a totally different society. So that's the way you would do it. And with the numbers of these kids, that wouldn't that have been that hard of a thing to pull off because the amount of people living in these areas in the 1800s in the U.S., there wasn't that many people out there. So you sh flood them with farmhands. And if you look at there aren't too many pictures of the 19 in the early 1900s. But if you look at the pictures that we have from them, you see a hell of a lot of child labor, especially in the U.S. And you're looking at these kids going, you know what? All I see are pictures of these kids working in factories. <coughs> the factories are already there, but there's no adult supervision in these factories. So what the hell are these kids doing? So you don't see them being supervised by anybody other than other children. And the other thing is, is that where the hell are these kids parents? If the parents aren't working in the factories, then where the hell are they? So we have this massive, massive migration of orphan children that we still don't have a decent explanation of where the hell did all these kids come from? Did you guys see any of that? No, but I guess if you look at the time period that this happened, was there any um, major um, health issues that, that wiped out or famines that wiped out? Um, large population bases and that could be something that was a trigger you know like the, the adults got sick and died and the kids managed to survive so they became orphans so you got to do something with them could have been could have been i haven't seen anything like that but it is a good explanation of what happened because as far as this goes we still don't have an idea of where the hell these kids parents went and where they all showed up or I, how they I, all showed up I found uh, something uh, in an article that uh, why the kids came from uh, urban areas like New York was because New York was an important harbor and all these orphans which were sent from, from Europe or most of them arrived in New York and then they were uh, brought to the trains and then to the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really good point, Ralph, too, is so these kids were coming in to New York and we know that at the time still back then New York was the biggest trade hub going as far as North America goes. So why would they be bringing children to there? I mean, it makes sense. It's the easiest place to bring the kids if the idea was to bring them to the Midwest to work in these different places and these factories. Yeah, that would be the best place to bring them. But there was another part of that story and it was having to do with back in the 1700s and early 1800s, we had another uh, really big like boom in one other thing, aside from orphanages, which just exploded in the early 1800s, we also had asylums come up at that time. So if you look globally, we had asylums come up all over the place. So it seemed like in the 1700s, you had a couple of what we would consider modern day mental institutions, but they really didn't house that many people. And most of these people were, were not 
they were it wasn't a mental disability. Most of it was a physical disability that somebody didn't have a cure for, so they just put them in there. But then at the turn of the century from 1700 to 1800, all of a sudden you have something called trade and lunacy. So trade and lunacy started showing that it was a very good business to own a lunatic asylum. So these lunatic asylums started popping up all over the place. And at the same time, you started having laws that said, well, if you can't care for your child, then the state's going to take them. Again, we're going back to the government of that time. So here you go down that same road. So whatever happened to the adults, we're not exactly sure, but we do know a large, large amount of these people ended up in lunatic asylums. And when you look at the reasons that they were put there, could literally be anything. Again, speaking out against the government at that point in time, you were considered a lunatic. I, I, we haven't really gone too far from that now, but you were actually imprisoned and they would immediately take your children from you. We have that happening at the same time where in Chicago, we see a, uh, a business coming out of this where they in America had what they called baby farms. So now you had a baby farm where you could actually drop off your child. So first they were making it illegal to have a child if you were broke or an unwed mother. And then uh, after that, they said, well, don't worry about it. We can take these kids from you and we can give them good homes. So that might have been the answer for what happened to the adults and to the children of that time. But during that time period, the one thing that we don't deny is the fact that all of a sudden we got a ton of kids that have no parents that were pushed all over the world to different places, erase their identities, erase their past, taught a brand new history of everything and propped it and plopped into these places to say, this is how things are. So this is what looks like the beginning of what we called in earlier, the population reset. If you want to see also how this works, the other thing that we started having going up in the early 19th century was with the amount of floods of kids that we had coming in everywhere, we needed something for them to do. <clears throat> so we had amusement parks going up in the U.S. And in the U.S., we also had one of the things in the amusement park that was the, the strangest, to say the least, attraction to go to, aside from rides and candy and different games to play. We had incubator houses. So we saw a... Uh, a bunch uh, inside of these like fairs, they would put up based on a few different doctors at the time that were working on this project, baby ink, baby incubators. And the idea was, okay, here you go. If you come to the fair, you can start looking. And on the front of the signs would say live babies. And it was like, all right, why the F would anybody pay to see a live baby? I mean, who cares? I, like, you've never seen a friggin' baby in your whole life, right? But <clears throat> these were premature babies. And this was another thing that was odd about this, because across the U.S., and not only the U.S., but in different parts of the world, we saw hundreds of thousands of premature babies in these incubator attractions. And it was like, OK, what happened at that period of time? And Bevo, you know, that's a good point to say, was there some type of disease or famine that happened? Because all of a sudden it seemed like one out of every two babies that we were popping out at that time based on current population numbers, these kids were premature. 
We've never seen numbers like that anywhere else in history. And all of a sudden, right at the beginning of the 1900s, we saw these baby farms and these incubator factories and all this odd shit going on with babies. So that went back into a popular population reset. So if you have one from the 1800s, if you have one group of children that have been relocated and reprogrammed from all over the world, being put into these areas and now they uh, they haven't actually seen babies before this is not something they're working in factories and in fields so now you have these amusement parks going up so you say okay no problem let's show them what actual babies look like and that was an attraction for them they paid money to see babies because they had never seen them before it was a really interesting part of the thing that we were talking about with the world's fairs and the amusement parks on the last episode did you guys see anything about those no but what what dates in the 1800s is the is the biggest sort of time frame that you see popping up in your research roughly because i was i'm just researching um pandemics etc during the 1800s I, I, I can tell you it started the first train on the 15th of january 1864 and the peak of the movement uh, was in 1889. Okay. The, I, all I could really find on that line was uh, there was a thing called the third cholera pandemic um, from 1852 to 1860, and that um, spread from India to Asia to Europe to North America and Africa. So it was global. Um, so that could have been something that caused a lot of people to die and had homeless kids, but I guess we'll never know. Yeah, yeah, that about, is one of the causes possible. Go ahead, Ralph. About the incubator babies or ventilator babies, sometimes they are called as well, I think. Um, this was uh, the first time um, at the exhibition called Industry of All Nations at uh, Bryant Park in New York, which was there from July 1859 till November 1854. And then it continued and the doctor later uh, started an amusement park uh, end of the 19th century with a show. And he went from um, World Fair to World Fair. Yeah, so you did see what I was talking about there. Yes. Yeah, strange. So he's putting on an event that that would be like going to the zoo and seeing like, you know, exotic animals from different lands and then babies. Like, <laughs> well, why the hell would anybody pay to see babies? Well, if you've never actually seen one before, that might be an attraction that you might want to take a look at. Also, during that time period, when we're talking about these mud floods, Bevo, because you asked about the time periods, if you look at some of the maps uh, from your region of the world down by Australia, you'll see that the maps, this is why they say there was more than one. You'll see that the maps throughout the 1700s going into the 1800s and then beyond into the 1900s, you'll see that at some point in time, they used to draw the maps with Tasmania connected to the Australian mainland. So that was the time period that we are focusing on, those couple of hundred years right there, late 1700s, early 1900s. I read there were three mud floods. Yes, that was what I read also. The the, the first at the 8th of January, 1740, the second in the year 1834 in October, and then uh, one in June, 1800. 
92. Yeah, that's that's what I saw also. So there were and they they were coming back to back. It seemed like uh, different parts of the same event, but they were coming pretty close together. And you see that on the old maps. So with that, again, we're not you know exactly sure because this history looks like it's been intentionally wiped for whatever reason. It looks like they wanted to start our history over and tell us a completely different story. The next topic I wanted to go into was some of the more interesting ones of if you see what happened the at the times that people were talking about this, there were some of the most famous uh, authors that we had. So at that time, the authors, you know, there wasn't like moving pictures and stuff. People were reading books a lot. And we have the most famous authors of the time. And one of them was Charles Dickens. He wrote a book called Bleak House. And his book starts off right away by saying, by mentioning the mud in the streets. And it said as much mud in the streets as if the waters had newly retired from the face of the earth. Now, these authors also went into a whole bunch of other different stuff with the orphans that we were just referring to. So we had Wuthering Heights that had that was focusing on on um, orphans. We had Cosette from Les Miserables. We even had things like The Jungle Book, and that was orphaning. We had Heidi from back in that time. We had Peter Pan, Rapunzel, Snow White. We also had uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, Anne of Green Abels. Every single one of those books from back then focused on orphans because it was such a big part of the culture. It was something that everybody could actually relate to. So that's what that's why these people became the top selling authors of the time. They were ha- they were writing about what was going on. These you know, when Dickens wrote Bleak House, these were very what we would call bleak times. These were terrible times for a lot of these kids. There's a hell of a lot of trauma tied to this kind of stuff. So he was writing books along with a lot of other people that were trying to say, hey, you're not, you know what? You're not the only one out there that went through this. You can find support. There are others like you because a lot of these kids, when they got sold off or they got reacclimated by the state and then shoved off to some distant land, they felt like they were alone, but they'd also not knew that other trains were running at that time. So they felt like they were the only ones. These books made such a hit because it was all about orphans. Did you guys see anything about that? Um, no, but uh, uh, I read about uh, where about the parents of the orphans. I oh. don't know if you got the theory for this, uh, but uh, according to to what I figured out, it's from uh, uh, Tatarians. That's what I was thinking personally, because if you had an empire that had been overthrown, and it you know this empire looked like it didn't dissolve from a fifth column tactic. This empire looked like it was overthrown from an outside from outside forces over the course of time along with these mud floods. So that's what to me looked like happened. Either the adults were captured and, and enslaved by the opposing force or they were killed by the opposing force. And now you have a lot of these kids left from there. That would have made the most sense if we did have a mud flood, what that or mud floods, what that would have left is the old world as we were talking about the architecture and a lot of places that were already put in place but didn't have anybody in them at the time. And so 
what instead of just pushing these kids out into the fields into agriculture you also want to bring in the industrial revolution and you have the factories so you fill it with these kids so if you look at the next topic i want to bring up on this is if you look at the pictures that were taken back then so back in the day these old pictures got taken from 1800s to early 1900s when film first started coming out the way that they actually did film was a little more difficult you had to expose the negative for a quite a quite a bit of time so you had five to sixty seconds where you had to keep the entire negative exposed it wasn't like a flash pan picture it was prior to that the thing is is that we do have pictures of places in that time period but what we have is we have empty cities all over the world so we have very famous places that have pictures of cities that are some of them even san francisco are panoramics uh pictures so somebody took multiple plates of pictures of san francisco and there's nobody in the streets there's nobody anywhere not only is there nobody in these photos there's no carts because they were still using horse and buggies there's nothing in the roads at all and when I looked at them, I saw the one in San Francisco was unique because the only living thing in the picture was a horse and the horse belonged to the guy, whoever the hell was taking this photo at the base of the hill that he set the camera up on. So if we go into all the ancient cities like in Moscow, St. Petersburg, all over Russia, if we go into some of them in India where they have different places that were, you know, very popular at the time we have london at some points in time all of these early pictures prior to the 1900s the entire city is barren there's nothing in it but the city is fully there and i bring up san francisco and moscow because these early cities with these pictures looks like these cities have been built out for miles and this is at a time where we're claiming that the population is 20,000 people in san francisco so all of a sudden out of the blue they you know what was it just incredible urban sprawl forward thinking by these guys where they just decide out of nowhere hey you know what let's build enough infrastructure and housing to house millions of people meanwhile there's only 20,000 of us we really don't need it but we're going to go ahead and do this anyway so if you guys looked up any of that stuff you'll see the pictures of the late 1800s early 1900s didn't have any people in them and even stranger than that and this is coming from living in new york you know growing up how i grew up those neighborhoods one of the things that was very predominant everywhere was back then nobody had clothes dryers so the one thing that you notice when you look at every neighborhood in you know the early 1900s and then mid 1900s there's friggin' clotheslines everywhere. I mean, they're all over the damn place. Everybody in the U.S. was using clotheslines somehow to dry their clothes after they washed them. And in these pictures, there's no clothes. If you look in the windows, there's no pots with little tiny plants in them. There's no flowers planted anywhere. And the strangest thing about the whole thing is the roads are all mud. So they built all of these cities to be, be able to populate millions of people in them, and they didn't do the friggin' streets. 
You know what I mean? Like, that would have been the first damn thing. I mean, we've all heard all roads lead to Rome. Yeah, well, that was the first damn thing the Romans did when they got to somewhere else was they built the road because that was the best way to transport stuff back and forth. So you mean to tell me that you decided to build an entire city without roads? That was the last thing on the list? No, that just seems outrageous. Have you guys seen any of those pictures, actually, the old uh, early or late 1800s, early 1900 pictures yet? Yeah, I, I have. I looked at a lot of those pictures and um – there's i'm not on board with the whole um tartarian theory to be honest but this does raise questions for me um the it's similar to along the same vein is when the people were heading west in america you know out through chicago down through utah etc you know these guys are uh, heading out there in wagons and they you know basically got a horse and cart and yet there's these buildings that appear in photographs that are you know less than a decade after they sort of got there so to be honest how do you build such intricate buildings with the technology and the technology required to build those buildings after having only just rocked up to a place um, within 10 years um, of that building's completion given that those buildings back in the day, you know, allegedly took, you know, two, three, four, five years. So that didn't make any sense to me. So I, I don't quite understand that. I never found any good explanation for it. Um, but it's definitely an anomaly. I don't – do you have anything on that new one? Like how – You know, actually, I'd like to point out that you're absolutely right about that. So some of these buildings that, these, that were built, again, in an outrageously fast amount of time, the – I want I want the listeners to know that also this was built. Most of these places were built during a time anywhere from 40 to 60 years prior to the advent of power tools. So these guys are still using manual labor. And like you said, there's nobody around. There's a couple of them I can think of where there was uh, I think it was the Ottawa Library. The Ottawa Library is just this absolutely massive structure. And they said they built it again back then in record time, but there was only 15,000 people living there. So you get these guys that are homesteaders that first show up, they're pioneers, they come across and they go, okay, you know what? We're all here. We're all hanging out. This is a great thing. We're going to start setting up, uh, you know, farms and trying to make a living for ourselves. And then all of a sudden they, they just come up with, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to spend every single extra minute that we have building this massive library in the middle of nowhere because there wasn't a town there at that time. So, yeah, I had quite a few of those things. I'll give you an example, Bevel. Also, like in America, we're very familiar with the Erie Canal. So the Erie Canal was a man-made project that connected quite a few of the states. And it was a really big deal for us because we had uh, getting from the East coast of the U S to the Midwest of the U S was extremely difficult because we have a mountain range going there, but we managed to go around by building the Erie canal, which connected the East coast in through the great lakes, which are some of the lakes in North America at the top, which could get people around the mountain range. And if you want to talk about speed on this stuff, though, like you were saying, again, this is an area where we don't have a hell of a lot of guys, but the, canal itself was 360 something miles long i think it was 351 miles long so like Mm. 560 kilometers right they said that the amount of time that they built this thing would have done it would have had to have been done from start to finish it they would have been doing a mile a day 
with the crews that they have. Now, that's a mile a day. Also, there's 36 locks inside the Erie Canal, so it's a big, giant lock for the canal itself. There's 36 of these. So you would have had to have a crew come in and not only they're they're not just digging because this isn't flat land at the time we had what we call virgin forests out there so these things had never been touched so these were ancient trees and they were massive so you have to fell all the trees in one mile worth of space drive all the way down it and then start installing locks on these things and it for 350 consecutive days you did one mile a day that crew would have been working back breaking speeds i i just i i absolutely don't believe that it could have been done there's no friggin way that that could have happened and we have stories like that all over the place one of the things that i wanted to bring up when we were talking about the uh uh mud flood happening was were these buildings there before because that was the theory of it and we see that a lot of these buildings that we have that people believe that were ancient world buildings and the people of the modern time couldn't have done it. We have leaning towers. So everybody's probably familiar with the leaning tower of Pisa because that's the most famous one. But if you go on any place, so you could just look up Wikipedia by itself and look up a list of leaning towers. There's leaning towers all over the world. There's hundreds of them. If you look at the construction, they were all constructed before the 1700s but they all started to lean right around the 1800s. So if there was a liquefaction event that was this mud flood theory coming in and the entire world had this happening at one time where where we had global earthquakes and a massive flooding of water coming in because of it, that would have turned the grounds liquefaction. These ancient buildings, some of them didn't get buried. They started to lean. So if you look at the leaning towers, you'll see that pretty, pretty much is uh all over the like all over the globe there's not a spot that really doesn't have one have you guys ever seen any of those towers that look like that yeah obviously i've seen the the leaning tower of pisa but um i mean i've actually myself lived in houses that have started to lean they just sink if you've got shit footings so yeah yeah, it, it absolutely. And that's a really good point, Bev, because that's what I wanted to bring up last. And I know that Ralph had wanted to talk a little bit at the end of the episode. So I'm going to close out with this because at with it, the footing is important. So if you're an architect and you're building a building, the first thing that you do is you put together what's called the bathtub. And that's basically the foundation. And what's necessary for that is that you have to have this underground foundation that was extremely stable to make sure the building didn't fall down or lean. So <clears throat> with that in mind, we're looking at some of these buildings that are leaning and it's possible that they didn't have good foundations, but we start looking at foundations of other buildings now. Hang on one second. And we've seen this over the modern times because we've started to do renovations on things. This is the part that I wanted our listeners to be able to look at because there's so much of it going on all over the world. If you start looking at these uh, uh, stories of how these things got built and what is underneath them, you'll start to see some discrepancies that don't make any sense. And like you said, Bev, the periods of time. So there's the giant arch it's the arch in france that is the uh, arch of triumph is what they call it 
And this arch is very famous. Everybody goes there for like uh, tourist attractions and to see everything. They said this arch took 12 years to build. And this arch is 90, 95 million kilograms. And it is just enormous. It's also a very beautiful arch. But again, if you look at the early pictures of this arch, there might be more to it that then meets the eye because the earliest pictures on this arch show people around it in the late 1900s. But again, the streets are mud. So there's there's no uh, they didn't do the streets again. And if you look at another one, some of the uh, places in Moscow in the Red Square, you'll see that the churches and the towers out there. These are amazing different pieces of architecture that were done in just five, six years. And you're talking about, again, thousands of tons of material during a time where hardly anyone lived out there. But what's really important is to start digging underneath it. So. I'll give you one that was uh, absolutely beautiful. And Ralph, you'll know this one. It's the Franker. It's a domed uh, masterpiece in Dresden. They started doing renovations on some of these places and even the U.S. Capitol building. And when you start to dig down under them, you'll see that these buildings have much more to them underneath the dirt. Now, that's not unusual because of the bathtub. But what's unusual is, is that it looks like the floors were originally the basement floors. So that what happens is, is that when we start renovating or we start going into restoration on these buildings, we start digging the outside out. And what we find in the basement floors are windows and doors that used to be the first floor. A lot of them you'll see in pictures now, and we don't think anything of it. But if you look at some of the old world architecture, you'll see basement windows and you'll only see a por portion of the window sticking out of the ground over the top of the sidewalk, which makes sense if you want to get light into a basement. But why the hell would you put an entire five to six foot window underneath the ground just to bury it over? And it really gets weird when you start putting doors down there that don't go anywhere. So if these guys are building, you know, the basements of a building to keep this structure up, you're going to want to use as many of the bricks as you can because you want it to be very stable. What you're not going to do is put windows and doors in a basement that don't go anywhere. Now, this is uh, all over the world. So if you guys look at these pictures, look at the stuff where people are starting to dig it up. And they even have some other odd stuff like you like out in your direction, Bevo. They had laws that they enacted in the 1800s where they said, well, this is the official story. The law was that they said due to um, flooding, we want everybody to bury their houses and build on top of it, which seems absolutely ridiculous. The state in uh, Australia actually said to the people that, hey, if you guys don't do it, we're gonna come in and do it for you. We're gonna send teams down there. But now that they started excavating, especially like the places in Melbourne, you'll see they had a few years back, I think it was 2014, where they found entire city blocks underneath the streets that had housing in it. Again, doors and windows that were under the ground. Now, even if they did bury this stuff, what was un unique about it was they have all their people, all the people's belongings. So if the people didn't, if they were leaving, they would have taken the stuff with them, especially the money. They left a lot of coin. And if not, then the workers who came down there, I'm willing to bet some of these guys would have had the idea 
to salvage this stuff or take it for themselves or resell it. But we have, again, all over the world, we have buildings that were buried. Now, it's not uncommon practice in the ancient world for a new empire to come into an old empire and build right on top of their cities. The Romans did it all the time. They would take somebody's city over, they would rip the city down to its foundation and rebuild it in the Roman setup. There was the joke that said, you know, the Romans only built one city, but they did it 372 times because they wanted a standardization of the city. So they build on top of cities. But what's what's hard to say with this is, is that most of these buildings, if you look at them, when we've excavated underneath them, the exact same building structure and material has been used. So this is part of the same building. It's not like they built on top of an old site. This was the original site. So now you have all this stuff underground, even the Capitol building in the U.S. We did this, too. If when they excavated the Capitol building, if you look at the uh, pictures from that, they looked down and not only did it have the doors and windows there, but it also had columns there. And that's not something you would do. Columns in the world of architecture is strictly for an aesthetic purpose. They're only there for looks and they hold up a small part of different things. They use them like a, a smaller buttress. You sure as hell wouldn't use these things under the ground <clears throat> because they would be highly unstable if you buried them all up. And this goes back to the episode that we had a little while ago when we were bringing up Gobekli Tepe. And I know Ralph that you're big on that one. That was this massive city that somebody found in the middle of nowhere, and it was predating, you know, everything that we had as far as written history goes. And we said, well, the official story is these guys built this amazing city. They lived there for a really, really long time. And before they left, they buried the whole friggin' thing, which just seems absolutely outrageous. We still don't know why they did it. But if you put a mud flood theory into it, it makes a hell of a lot more sense. They didn't bury it. They didn't have to bury it. It got buried by a natural event. These three mud floods that came back to back. So now if you look all over the world at these buildings that we've been excavating the bottom floors of, you'll see that there is almost in some places a minimum of nine meters where there's just dirt that piled up over a very quick period of time. The, uh, the geologists look at it and they call it the clay layer. So you'll see the first layers of what would be like a civilization at one point. Then you'll see nine meters or less, or I'm sorry, three meters, nine feet, three meters of space. That's just a solid layer of clay with nothing in it so that it was nothing that got buried. There was nothing there was that was a civilization that lived there and then the rest of it right on top of it. So that was what I wanted to tell everybody as I closed out on this topic was if you guys go online and look at these buildings that have been buried, look up mud floods and you will start to see that a lot of the buildings that we had have most of it buried underneath the ground prior to the 1800s. Yeah. Before Ralph um, comes in to close out with what he wanted to get by, um, I do find it bizarre that, like you mentioned, Melbourne and there are other parts of the world, there doesn't seem to be any documentation as to why these full structures exist beneath existing structures. And given that it's such a short time period, you know, like 100, 150, 200 years, you would think that there would be documentation somewhere. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Something, right? Yeah, yeah, something at least. But, you know, you, 
yeah, I, I, I couldn't find any valid reasons for any of that. But we also got to remember that rather than go out on conspiracy theory on all this, uh, uh, cities have been being buried for thousands of years. And uh, there's one in particular, and I've mentioned it before, and I've been there. It's Bath in England. You know, it's 2,000 years ago when the Romans were in there and, and they had a full city underneath it was built on top of by the by the British, and when they were excavating and do it, they found this 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 place underneath that was made by the Romans. So, you know, if we go along the line of these conspiracy theorists about the mud floods, we we've now got to say, well, that means there was mud floods two thousand years ago, not just one hundred and fifty. So, there's that. And just another thing I want to um, point out, new or ask new one before we go is. Again, this is um, something that doesn't make sense to me. When we talk about these um, ornate buildings that were built back in the 1850s or what have you in the Midwest, and, and not just the Midwest but all over the USA, um, they have these things that are almost like palaces and they're asylums and they're all over the country. These things have got hundreds and hundreds of rooms, you know, from the photos that, that are out there that you can look at they've got hundreds of rooms and they look like literally look like palaces so a how do they get the resources to build them where do they get the manpower to build them and really why do you want to build um essentially a palace for the criminal or for the insane as an yeah and and why so big you know when there's only a population of five thousand why are you building this asylum that looks like a palace in the middle of nowhere that can house a thousand people uh, th- that just makes no sense and i didn't find any reason as to that and but that just seems to be a theme um throughout all of uh the the u.s that the old asylums if you look at the pictures online you can see them they're crazy and a lot of them have been torn down um for whatever reason as well and w- again why would you tear down such a awesome looking building and architecture to replace it with basically a glass and cement blocks you know modern day structure is just uh yeah crazy anyway that was just some things that i noticed when i was um that i i couldn't answer myself and just leaves that little bit of um, doubt in the back of your head yeah 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 really a lot of strange things that stick out from this time period that we really don't have a solid explanation for so the idea is, was there a population reset? And if there was and it was successful, do, you know, it, is this the result of the success? And on top of it, are we going to see this again based on, you know, Charles Schwab's Great Reset World Economic Forum plans for uh, uh, Agenda 2030? Is this what they're planning on doing? Something similar to this again in the future. You know, are they planning to cut down on the population because they want to do another reset to usher in another age? And if it was the case, let's say hypothetically, like you said, was there a disease? What if there was a disease where the majority of the population didn't make it? How hard would it be just to take the remaining few people, the ones that agree with you, stick around, the ones that don't, you throw them in some kind of nut house and you start the history all over again. You could literally write anything you want. So, did it happen? Don't know. There's a lot of weird things out there that are really inconsistent with what we think is history. So from there, Ralph, go ahead. You wanted to uh, close out with the episode here? Yes, I've got some points which uh, 
I'm on Bevo's side. I, I, I think this whole thing is fabricated. And to start, we talked uh, uh, about the buildings uh, and especially in a lot of the, those stories about uh, uh, Tatania, uh, there's uh, the capital and uh, the, the pictures of the capital in a lot of articles. Now to the capital, uh, I read uh, that it was uh, nearly burned down during the war against the British um, in 1814. And there are uh, countless uh, reports about that this happened, uh, even paintings where you can see the half destroyed capital. So how Which capital was that, Ralph? Your capital. This Which capital, capital? Uh, in Washington. Oh, the U.S. Capitol building? Yes. Okay. We, yeah, yeah we're actually familiar uh, with that. Yeah, yes, we get taught it, that. It's it's uh, often used as an example um, uh, for the Tatarians built, uh, uh, for what they built. And even in the show, we mentioned it. And uh, how does it uh, connect with this that uh, it was nearly destroyed in 1814? So who rebuilt it? Yeah, I see what you're yeah. saying. You're saying if it was built by the Tartarians and it was part of their technology, when you when it was burnt down, how did us common plebs rebuild it? And that's what you're basically saying, yeah? Yes. Yeah, Good. good point. Any ideas? Uh, well, oh, we, no, no. We, I thought you were going to put a um, theory out there. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess, <laughs> I, I guess us. Theory, yeah. I guess us plebs just had a bunch of Tartarians locked up in a cellar somewhere, and when we needed something built, we just <laughs> bought them out. Yeah. So, so this this was one thing uh, because uh, uh, another thing, and uh, I want to go to the origin uh, of this theory. Because uh, the first video I found about it was funny enough on YouTube uh, from August 2016 by Philip uh, Druschinin. And uh, before this, there's nothing uh, uh, in the uh, internet about this theory. And he based his, his source for the video was a guy called uh, Anatoly Famenko, and he came up with a whole uh, new chronology of history explaining and, and in the center of this was Tataria. He um, published it in a book called History, Fiction or Science in the 90s, 1990s. And if you look, there's nothing about this story before uh, uh, this book. There's, you, you cannot find anything. So, uh, and um, Famenko uh, explained in his story uh, how the Tatarians were destroyed. It was that uh, the Western world were fighting against the Russians. He said the Napoleon War, the First World War and the Second World War, which doesn't make sense to me. And I, I uh, think that's why uh, the YouTuber changed it to the mud flood theory that the Tatarians were wiped out by uh, three mud floods. Before, in, in the origin of the uh, theory, there's no mud flood. So this all sounds very fabricated. And later there were even giants added to this whole story. 
Well, you know, this is going to be interesting next week. As far as that goes, like I said, the first mention of the actual empire was in 635 by the Byzantine historian. So we at least know that something was there. So we have a start of that. Later on, the maps will start to show the actual empire and the Encyclopedia Britannica sets of the, you know, the oldest times all have it listed as an empire. We even have flags of it. Hell, we even have people that are still called the Tartars now. So we know that there was something going on with the Tartarian Empire somewhere because we have historical document documentation of it. I'm not sure about that guy's theory. I'm not I don't really know his work, to tell you the truth. I was just going back into a lot a lot of the older writings, more ancient stuff, because that's where it actually came out. I don't know that guy's theory too well. But as far as the mud flood goes, now that we have, I think the best evidence that we have for that is all of the stuff that's under the ground. That seems like it's under the ground. That looks like it used to be the first floors look like they used to be the second floors of these ancient buildings. That was the biggest one because that looks like, you know, a global event where everybody you know, had this same problem over and over again. So now that we're excavating, that's the evidence to me that looks like, yeah, it's a possibility to this. There I've gotten own experience. When I was in Rome, I visited the, the catacombs and they are like 20, 30 meters under Rome and there's no sign of a mud flood. Oh, really? Okay. They might have just been catacombs, you know? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you know what? Also, while we're on this and we're still recording, I would like to thank one of our listeners because she was the one who wanted to bring up this topic because she was in one of the American cities and she has a lot of evidence of the mud floods from where she lives. So I wanted to say a shout out to one of our Noster friends for bringing this topic up when we first started. Okay, cool. You got anything else there, Ralph? Yeah, one last question. Uh, how can it be that the Tatarian Empire got destroyed by a flood, which uh, uh, left parts of the building, especially the fireplaces we talked about, and the way they uh, could uh, uh, generate their electricity uh, untouched? How could it be that, that this wiped out the whole empire? Right, right. So the reason I wanted to tie these together was because it looks like there was a hell of a lot more going on. As I said in the beginning, this looked like an empire that was under a pretty constant attack from other empires that were around it at the time. They looked like they were always getting always having to defend their borders. That original empire was split into four major empires and then a bunch of smaller ones that were more like outlying regions. But it looks like war was what really got to them. It doesn't look like a mud flood actually wiped them out. It looks like a mud flood was, it looks like what happened was these wars were going on for a very long period of time. When you read those documents I was talking about that were like the Persian Wars and stuff like that, you'll see that they were collapsing parts of this empire over and over again, and they were finally starting to grind it down. So it looks like the empire was coming to an end. And at the end of that time, 
that's when these mud floods happen. So it doesn't look like the mud floods were responsible for the collapse of this empire. It looks like the empire was collapsing already. And it looks like this, this event was what was able to do this population reset. So this was kind of like the, you know, the final steps. This was the icing on a cake. If you want to do a population reset, well, you got to get rid of that old empire. That's fine. But there's going to be a lot of evidence that these guys lasted and they were around for a long time. But what happened was this, these particular natural events, these mud floods were just enough to cover up just enough. And the two things combine is a way as what looks like the way that it was able to erase enough of this history to where we believe that these guys never existed. And the history that we have been taught in school is the accurate history. So it doesn't look like that the mud floods were the cause. It looks like that was just a part of the end of what would be their existence, their way of life. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, are you got anything else there, Ralph? I think we are through. Okay. We covered a lot today. Yeah. Yeah, you got anything else? Yeah, this is a good show as always, man. You uh, got anything else to add new one? No, I'm good. Okay, well, with that, I guess we'll um, we can we can wrap up today. I guess from my standpoint, I'm uh, I'm a bit of a skeptic, but there are some unanswered questions for me. I'm sure there's an answer, and it will come to light at some point. Um, but again, uh, thanks everyone in the audience for giving us your time. We appreciate your time is valuable, and I appreciate that you'll show support and to all those people that listen to us on um, whatever platform they choose um, down the track we also appreciate your time and thanks for listening so with that i'll um, say um, goodbye and hopefully we'll see you guys next week